I was trying to make a decision whether to go on the run or stay and face this. And I put that question to my spiritual teacher and, you know, he advised me that I should stay and face it and that I wouldn't really be able to continue as his student if I was living life on the run. But even if I had to do serious prison time, I could continue as a practitioner, as his student. And I mean, I was terrified of going to prison, but also not really thrilled about the idea of being on the run. I actually had very little financial resources at that time, the way things worked out. And in fact, I was working selling cars for a living to support my family. So it was kind of a relief. And it was really the first time I ever took anybody's advice. And before that, if you want me to do something, just tell me the opposite. You know, I did take that advice and I turned myself in. And as tough as that journey was, I've really never regretted it. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. This is your host, Mark Devine. On the show, we discover, we dive deep and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous. We talk in-depth to people from all walks of life, such as martial arts grandmasters, meditation monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and great adventurers, and many more. In each episode, we get deep into our guest's life, their experiences, their lessons learned, and we come up with actionable insights that we can use to follow and lead a life filled with compassion and courage and to do good things in the world. I'm excited today to talk to Dr. Fleet Mao, a fascinating guy. He's an uh, ordained Zen monk and also a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And he's developed programs around them that he teaches through HeartMind Institute, which is HeartMind CEO. He's written an incredible book called Radical Responsibility. But the most interesting thing is the guy was a drug addict and alcoholic, and he ended up running drugs and got sent to prison originally for 30 years. He ended up doing a 14-year sentence in prison. And that's where his meditation practice really took hold and dive into that and to completely transform himself into being a force for good. Dr. Fleet Mao, nice to meet you. How are you today? I'm great. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're about the third or fourth mindfulness professional that I've spoken to in the last six months. Uh-huh. Seems to be in the air these days, which is good news for the world. I think so. I agree. Now, I want to get into a lot. I have some intersection with your world as a, having taken, I think, three MBSR courses, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mm -hmm. been to Spirit Rock, been to have about a thousand hours of yoga certifications. And I got my start in Zen at age 21. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm not, I'm not a, like a serious Zen practitioner anymore, but um, I credit that with kind of getting me on a meditative path myself. So mm -hmm. this interview will come from a little bit of that perspective and that I, I understand a tiny bit of your world, but I'm fascinated with it. And I think it's so important. But your story is incredible. Like, you know, give us a sense of your upbringing and what led you to the turnaround point, which is the 14 years you spent in jail, which is incredible. And then we'll get into the work that you've done since then, which is helping a lot of people. Sure. So I grew up in the Midwest, a Roman Catholic family. I don't know for anybody that grew up in the 1950s, kind of middle class, leave it to beaver, kind of suburban world. And uh, my family had a family business, good basic family, I had a good education. But there was all the shadow stuff happening. We we had alcoholism in my family, and that created a real kind of psychic split for me. And I ended up kind of growing up with a big hole in my gut and a lot of stuff going on. And 
graduated from high school in 1968, which was one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history, mm-hmm. culturally and politically, with all the assassinations and so forth. At any rate, I was just classic angry young man, and the timing of the counterculture, I just went headlong into that and was pretty well immersed in it already in high school and eventually became, you know, kind of disillusioned with the craziness of the times, uh, the whole, you know, I was definitely full blown into drug, sex and rock and roll and anti-war politics and all the rest of it. And mm-hmm. But I became, you know, kind of disillusioned with things, was looking for something real and took off traveling in Latin America, just hoping to plug back into something real. I, I remembered my early childhood, things being very vivid and real and magical, feeling very kind of plugged into reality. And mm-hmm. somewhere around starting school, that kind of disappeared. I don't know whether it was just entering into school or whether it was the alcoholism in my family, whatever. Things just went from being vivid, real, and magical to kind of gray tones. And, mm. and I never really accepted that. And so I was always, you know, looking for something. And, you know, somehow I had this idea that I would find it traveling in South America. And I have even had this idea about getting to Peru. Mm-hmm. It took over a year to get there. Spent almost a year on a sailboat in the Caribbean and traveling all yeah. through Central America and Latin America and quite an adventure. I did finally make it to Peru and I did discover something really genuine and real there. Very magical place. But I, uh, the first time I returned to the U.S., I ran out of money, had to come back and work for a while. And I realized I wasn't able to bring that back with me. It was kind of environmental. Can I pause you here for a second? Yeah, sure. What do you think you discovered in Peru? Well, it's hard to say exactly, but I was living up, I mean, the whole country was pretty magical, but especially living up in the Sacred Valley of the Incas right. in the Cusco, Urubamba region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd wake up in the morning and it was almost like you had consumed some kind of psychoactive substances. It was just, you know, just, just environmentally, it was so powerful in that way. Did you participate in any of that while you were down there or would come across that? I definitely was still involved in drugs, although not the kind of hard drug usage I'd been involved in previous to starting my travels. I'd gotten involved in I, all the craziness. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of psychedelic experimentation, but then got off into hard drugs and IV drug mm-hmm. usage and so forth. And I, in some wow. ways, I was traveling to escape that world. Mm-hmm. The drug thing kind of shifted into the background during my travels in South America, much more interest in indigenous culture and the archaeology and the ruins and the history of these places. And mm-hmm. But it was still there. And then in South America, I got very into experimentation with a cactus source for basically mescaline, which is different than the peyote cactus we have here in the U.S. It's called San Pedro down there. Right. It's a little I've different, a little different. And But anyway, that's still, it wasn't just the fact of that. It was literally something about that environment. It was just a really magical place. The energy level of the entire region is vibrating much higher. Yeah, just the energy level of the region. Yeah, very much so. But at any rate, you know, I was still looking and uh, I ended up back in Peru again. And Eventually, while down there, I, you know, I'd been on a spiritual journey my whole life and really always been a spiritual seeker. And, you know, so I had all this craziness of the counterculture going on on the one hand, but I also was continuously interested in the mind. I was a psych major as an undergraduate and always kind of a spiritual seeker. And by this time, I'd zeroed in. I figured out I was a Buddhist by the time, really, my sophomore year in high school. I started reading some books on Zen, and it was the mm-hmm. first thing I ever read that really made much sense to me. Right. And so I kind of knew that, but I hadn't really met a lot of other people. And I was growing up in Missouri. It wasn't exactly a hotbed for that kind of thing. <laughs> and But in my travels, I started to meet more spiritually inclined people. And then I kind of zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Mm-hmm. And there weren't very many books published at that time, four or five, mostly the Evans Wentz series, an Englishman who did some of yep. the early translations of some of the Tibetan Buddhist teachings. And 
but I was living way up in the mountains of Peru and had those, was trying to study and trying to practice on my own, trying to figure it out on my own. And that's when uh, someone showed up at my house with a copy of Rolling Stone magazine in 1974 with a big article, big feature article about the first sessions, summer sessions at then Naropa Institute, which is now Naropa mm-hmm. University, right. founded by the great Tibetan meditation master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And when I saw that and saw his name, it just like, I just knew I had to go there. Mm-hmm. There were even some things I saw in the feature story that things didn't resonate with somebody. It was just him, his name, that. And I didn't even know that he was actually of the very lineage I was kind of zeroing in on through my reading. Mm. Anyway, so I, I knew I had to go there. And it took me, I went up to check it out and came back. And it really took me until, I think, 1977 to enroll. But I went and got my master's degree there. And and it was then a, a program called Master's Degree in Buddhist and Western Psychology. They, they mm-hmm. now call it a Master's Degree in Contemplative Psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. But it was a very intensive three-year clinical training program, training us to work with really people experiencing extreme states, schizophrenia and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Very, very powerful program grounded in deep meditation training, which is primarily what I was looking for. I hadn't really decided I w- was going to be a therapist per se, but I wanted that deep meditation training. Right. But, you know, along the way, I'd gotten caught up living in, as an expat in South America in small scale drug trafficking. And, and I financed my way through graduate school with that and, you know, was getting very involved with my teacher in that tradition. But I had this secret life. I'd disappear once or twice a year to South America, do a smuggling run, have enough money to survive and continue living outside the system. I wasn't trying to get rich. It was just a way to wow. live outside the system and keep my problems at bay. My marriage was falling apart, much having to do with my lifestyle. My wife was from Peru. She never quite assimilated to the U.S. And so I was keeping my problems at bay with money. And I, and I had a lot of cognitive dissonance around being involved in what I was involved in, getting more and more involved in the Buddhist path and right. at the same time being involved in all this craziness. And, but I self-medicated around that, you know, to deal with that cognitive dissonance. And I knew it had to end. I was kind of on the way to trying to untangle it. But before I could, I earned my way into a federal drug sentence. Oh, and I was indicted in 1985. I knew the indictment was coming for about a year. How did you guys get busted or how do you get rolled up? What's that story? So, you know, the proverbial last run, right? We decided uh, mm-hmm. things had kind of fallen apart in different ways. So I'm just going to go do one more run, kind of pay off our bills, come out with a little, you know, cash positive and leave this behind. Right. And of course, that's when you get caught. I didn't actually get caught on that run. An associate of mine did. I was actually on the island of Curacao on the run for uh, three or four days and and escaped that island. and made my way back to the U.S. And that associate of mine never did cooperate, but he had somebody with him who did. And then somebody else I've been involved with, you know, ended up getting busted. And then some other people I've been involved with and various people I've been involved with ended up getting busted and started cooperating and decided to invite me to the party. Uh So I knew that I was being investigated. And uh, in fact, at one point they seized my home. Hmm. I was trying to make a decision whether to go on the run or stay and face this. And I put that question to my spiritual teacher. And, you know, he advised me that I should stay and face it and that I wouldn't really be able to continue as a student if I was living life on the run. But Mm -hmm. even if I had to do serious prison time, I could continue as a practitioner, as a student. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I was terrified of going to prison, but also not really thrilled about the idea of being on the run. I actually had very little financial resources at that time, the way things worked out. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was working, selling cars for a living to support my family. 
So it was kind of a relief, and it was really the first time I ever took anybody's advice. Wow. <laughs> before that, if you want me to do something, just tell me the opposite, you know. Right. I did take that advice, and I turned myself in. And as tough as that journey was, I really never regretted it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my time in prison was a bit unique because I went in with a lot of skills already. Mm-hmm. I mean, prison for most people is incredibly damaging and debilitating, and people mm-hmm. mostly come out worse than when they went in. But I went in with a a lot of skills. I already had a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. I've been trained as a meditation teacher. You know, I had a a good, strong context from my early education in my family, despite the shadow issues and the alcoholism. But I had a lot of preparation. So I I went in there and the shock of going to prison really woke me up, obviously. And and more than anything, it was the fact that my son was nine years old then. He was going to grow up without his dad. And Mm. I was originally sentenced to 30 years without parole, a 30-year no parole sentence. And I was 35 years old, pretty much thought my life as I'd known it was over with. And, you know, that my son was literally, I'd pretty much abandoned him and his mother. His mother and I had been separated for quite a while, but nonetheless, now I was completely abandoning them financially and so forth. And so I was absolutely devastated, you know, having to face all the selfish decisions I've been making for so yeah, long yeah. and putting my son's life at risk and his mom at risk. And, you know, I just really had to face all that. And I was absolutely devastated. So I became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and to take all the good I've been given and do something with it. I didn't know surety that I would even survive my prison time, right. but I wanted to do something with it if I could that would leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even his dad died in prison. Right. It's interesting if I could pause you there. Yeah. I don't know if you experienced this, but when I, in my early days, especially, you know, as a meditation student, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I got my start in Zen and read Suzuki's book and was really inspired. This is my 18, 19 year old. And then I found a martial arts grandmaster named Nakamura, who was a Zen master. And, and we would, small group of us would take periodic retreats up at the Zen Mountain Monastery mm-hmm. in uh, Woodstock, New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in those early days, you know, I had fantasies about being a yogi monk in a cave. And I've, and then I went in the military and, and became a Navy SEAL, continued my practice. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool because the military vastly simplified things for me. I didn't really have to worry about money anymore. Money just came into my bank account, a lot of it tax-free. And, and I had all this time to train. And I've often fantasized, that's more on the negative side, that prison could be the same thing if you were a spiritual seeker. It's like you get your own cave to train in. And if I find myself in prison, I went and donated a few thousand of my books through the prison fellowship. And so I got to visit a Norwalk prison. It shattered my fantasy. But my fantasy was, man, I get to go and I get fed three meals a day and I can just work out and meditate. <laughs> Probably wasn't like that for you. But yeah. was there any truth to that? You know, it provided you that protected space to advance your practice. Yeah, well, people sometimes do try to make that comparison of a prison and a, you know, an ashram or a monastery or something like that. There really is very little comparison other than that you get, (laughs) you know, three hots and a cot, right? Right. And, you know, you all wear more or less the same clothes and your life is simplified. And, you know, in that sense, it's similar. But but ashrams and monasteries are set up for awakening and for mindfulness and being awake and leading a disciplined life. And and in prison, people are just trying to be mindless, you know, just get through their time and numb out and not experience it. And they're full of chaos and noise and right. anger and violence. I mean, they're really horrific environments. Mm. So, yeah, it's nothing like that. Nonetheless, I was very dedicated. Mm-hmm. And so I did live a very monastic life in there, a life, uh, but also a life of service. So I actually took monastic vows while I was in there because I wanted to 
I want to expand what it would it mean to be a monk in prison? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it wasn't just about being celibate, but well, to live a, a really disciplined life in prison. Mm-hmm. And I felt if I could figure something out, maybe that's something I could share with other prisoners. Mm-hmm. So I took novice monastic vows in a Tibetan tradition that I'd already been part of. And then I actually got the, what, the interesting, the way I got involved with Zen was, you know, I found even though I'd taken these vows and I, and I was corresponding with Pema Children, who was part of my lineage and has the mm-hmm. same teacher I do, uh, one of the yep. most famous Buddhist teachers in the world today. Right. But I was corresponding with Pema as kind of my mon- monastic mentor. But I still found it very hard, even though I was leading this very disciplined life and practicing a lot, to remember the monastic part because I wasn't wearing robes. There was nothing else to remind me of it. And at one point I had this idea, well, because Trunk Brumche was very close to a number of Zen teachers, and he used to wear a Roksu over his Western style suit a lot when he taught. Roksu is mm-hmm. a Zen vestment. Right. It's an abbreviated vestment. It's a cloth around the neck and a kind of a square vestment here. And uh, it's worn by Zen priests and Zen teachers. And so he had two of them. And one of the things I, I traveled with him a lot. I was one of his close attendants and traveled with him a lot. And I would take care of his robes and, and I w- almost would put them on them him before he would teach. So I was very familiar with that. I thought, well, maybe I could get a, a Zen Roksu. And I had already started this organization, Prison Dharma Network, to support other Buddhist prisoners and people, Buddhist volunteers, people interested in bringing Buddhism and Dharma and meditation into the prison system. Mm-hmm. So I started that nonprofit. And one of, one of the teachers on our spiritual board of advisors was uh, with Dida Lori from Zen Mount Monastery. Yeah, from the same place you were going. Okay. John Dida Lori Roshi. He was the teacher, Dido. Yeah. The former merchant marine with tattoos all yeah. over his body. Yeah. What a neat guy. So I wrote to him. He was a kind of response, but he said, you know, well, if you're going to do that, you're really going to have to become my student. You're going to have to do this. And he was about jumping through all these hoops, right? You know, and, and I understood that, but I already had a full-blown tradition. I didn't, but I realized he was being honoring his own tradition, but there was kind of no acknowledgement of the fact that I'd been a serious practitioner for like 15 years already. And, and I don't fault him for that at all. It just didn't connect. But then later I read about Bernie Glassman, who's his Dharma brother and his senior, really because Bernie was the first person made a Roshi by Maizumi Roshi, who was both of their teachers. When I read about Bernie starting the Zen Peacemaker Order in somewhere in the mid-90s, it just really struck me, this idea of being able to fully embrace a monastic path, but your vocation being in the streets, not in a monastery, and the integration of social action and Zen and so forth. And that was really just who I was, what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to give up my own Tibetan tradition, but I thought I could do this as well. I actually got permission from my teacher in the Tibetan tradition, who was by then Chung Prumche's son. Chung Prumche had died, but I got permission and I wrote to Bernie and Bernie was just an immediate yes, right? You know, he was just like, mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, you're exactly the person, kind of person we're looking for. You're already doing it. We can empower you further. And so I started studying with Bernie and that began my Zen path. And I studied with Bernie probably from 1994 through the rest of my prison time. And I ended up doing Jukai in prison with him. And if you're in prison, how did that work? Like, how did you actually study with him? Was it through phone conversations or? Yeah, correspondence and phone conversations, both with he and his wife then, Jishu Holmes. Okay. I corresponded with both of them, and they both came to visit me in the prison quite a few times. They're very generous. Really? They came in to do the Jukai ceremony for me, which is when you become a, a lay practitioner with the commitments to the lineage and the Bodhisattva vow and so forth. Then later, I was ordained a novice priest in the Zen Peacemaker Order while in prison. And today, I'm a Roshi in that tradition. Bernie made me a Roshi about three years ago, just a year before he died. So anyway, I've had these dual paths all along, both the Tibetan tradition and the Zen tradition. And that's still true today. I'm a senior teacher in both. And I would say the Tibetan tradition, really my core practice lineage. 
but I'm also very involved in the Zen Peacemaker work, work, and especially because it's all about integrating uh, Zen with peacemaking and social action and social justice work. But during my prison years, what it was like was this was a, a maximum security federal prison hospital. There were a thousand patients, 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, wow. and then about 300 general population inmates there to help run the place. I was among that group. And I got a job teaching school because I had a master's degree. So my day job for 14 years was teaching school, helping other inmates learn to read or get their GED or study for college classes. I managed to get a a meditation group started in the prison chapel that met twice a week. We started the first hospice. I was there in the height of the AIDS epidemic. So we started the first hospice in a prison anywhere in the world. That was a big part of my life for 11 years. All my meal breaks and a lot of my free time up in the hospital caring for men who were dying of AIDS and other illnesses as well. And that gave birth to these two national organizations. I ended up starting Prison Dharma Network to support prisoners interested in Buddhism and meditation, and the National Prison Hospice Association to get that prison hospice model out into the world. And today, there's probably 75 or 80 prison hospice programs in the U.S. alone today, and it's really transformed end-of-life care in prison. So Mm. those are a big part of my life while I was there in prison. You know, I really, I got really disciplined into you know, getting physically fit and working out all the time, very active in the hospice work, very active in 12-step work, mm-hmm. you know, just really work on transforming myself, meditated two or three hours a day, studied two or three hours a day, just led this very, very disciplined kind of monastic lifestyle, but also engaged, you know, having a job and engaged in service activities. So, and I ended up doing 14 years when I went in, I thought I was going to do 30. The next day in the paper, it said I'd be 65 before I'd have any chance of release. But once I got in, I learned how the good time worked under the old law. I was sentenced before 1987. Everything changed in 1987, but in the federal system. But I was sentenced in 1985. So then you got a lot of good time, especially if you had a sentence 10 years or longer. You got 10 days a month statutory good time and then five days a month, what they call extra good time or work good time or can't good time if you just kept a job and you earned that as you went. So it took me a while to figure all that out, but I eventually realized that if I stayed out of trouble, I'd serve 18 and a half, and that still felt like forever. Right. Then it took my appeal about three years to go through the courts, or two and a half, three years, and they knocked off one of the five counts I'd been convicted of, and that reduced my sentence from 30 down to 25. So then at that point, I knew I would serve 14 and a half on my sentence, and that's what I ended up serving. Mm. 14 inside, and then six months in a halfway house and on house arrest when I got out. Mm -hmm. That was my lifestyle in there, which is totally focused on training myself and on discipline, but doing it in an environment that I really had to completely create that for myself. There was nothing in the environment that supported it. Right. Fascinating story. It's one of the reasons that Dharma societies exist and ashrams is, is that environmental and also social support for a practice. And I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of people who get into mindfulness today they fall off the course. It's difficult for them if they don't have an environment as well as the Dharma you know, group, the social support. Is there any advice you have for people to like stay the course if they don't have that or where they can find th- those two things that are missing? Well, there's so much available today and there's so much available online. Now, unfortunately, we're missing the in-person right. quality of being involved in Dharma groups and sanghas and communities. It's very important. Right. But at the same time, there's so much available online. In fact, many, many students are having so much more contact with their teachers than they ever had before because, right. you know, especially well-known teachers, you know, you might go to a retreat with them once or twice a year and then you go back home and you have your practice. Maybe you have your local group that you sit with or something. 
But, you know, now so many uh, major Dharma teachers are teaching on a regular basis over Zoom and their students are, you know, having a lot more contact with them. So that's quite interesting. But, you know, I think you need, for me, you know, having that social support and being part of a community, I think is really important, not only in terms of supporting our practice, but it's very much part of the practice. I mean, certainly in the Zen tradition and Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which are both part of Mahayana Buddhism, any notion of realization really shows up in the relational field. That's where you actually see if people are actually becoming more awake and more realized and more compassionate and kinder and, you know, Mm -hmm. that shows up in the relational field. And so our practice, there is a solitary part of our practice, which is incredibly important, but then there's the communal aspect of it, and, and they're both important. I also think it's important to get really good instruction. Yeah. Now, I've been a student of the art of meditation for more than 50 years now, and I've studied meditation from all different traditions, all the different Buddhist traditions, and even from Hindu traditions and Taoist traditions. I really consider myself you know, a student of the art of it, as well as the science of it, with what's mm-hmm. emerged in a neuroscientific study of mindfulness and meditation over the last 10 to 20 years. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people get insufficient instruction, yes, and therefore they really struggle with the practice. And You know, they struggle with working with their mind and they find it hard and they find it boring and it's hit or miss. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. I've developed a model called neurosomatic mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which is a deeply embodied approach, neuroscientifically informed, deeply embodied approach to the practice that can help people stabilize their mind much more quickly and start experiencing the profound states of awareness that you read about in the books much more quickly. Mm-hmm. And when you start experiencing that, you're much more likely to continue because you go, wow, this right. this is actually doing something. This works. This is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're much more likely to continue, right? So I think it's really important to get really good instruction mm-hmm. and to have an ongoing relationship with some kind of teacher or mentor. And then as we've been discussing, I think the community aspect is very important. So that brings it, and this is actually personal to me because similar to you, I, but I came through the martial arts tradition mm-hmm. and I've done a number of martial arts. I have three different black belts and I now pursue Aikido. So I have some instruction there, but they're not meditation teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And then through yoga, I found some great instruction there, but still it wasn't, you know, the yoga, the way it's transmitted to the West didn't have the meditative practices really come with it. And so I've done this kind of like smorgasbord. Mm-hmm. And then here I am at my age with, you know, meditating since I was 21, finding I'm kind of doing it on my own. And so a lot of people, this relates to what you're just talking about. How do you find a teacher in a, in a lineage that you just know is right for you? Yeah. There's no one, one right way. For, and I've tried a number of things. I said, oh, interesting, but that's not right for me. I thought Zen was right for me and I could still be, but I found a difficulty finding a teacher here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. But now I'm thinking, well, that's because I was thinking I had to do it in person. So to answer the broader questions, how does one find a lineage or a teacher that they think is right for them? Do you just keep trying things out or use your intuition? Yeah, What's I actually there? had a close friend who's a wonderful Zen teacher in San Diego, but she's retired now and actually living down in uh, the Baja, I think, Cezanne, okay. who's part of my same lineage, my Zumiroshi's lineage right. in Soto Zen. But, you know, that's a perennial question. Right. How do you find that teacher, that lineage that really is the right home for you? I had bounced around quite a bit as I was interested in this. I got involved in Gurdjieff work a little bit. I was really, I read all the books. I was very interested, but I, I got around a couple of groups. I didn't resonate so much. I, You know, I'd had contact with this and that around and could have easily gotten involved in a few things, but it's just the clarity wasn't there. Mm-hmm. As I said, when I first saw Trung Perumche's name, even in that article in Rolling Stone magazine, something, this gravitational pull just practically grabbed me by the throat. And then when I got up there to check out 
Naropa. It's still everything kind of felt very clear. Mm-hmm. It took me a while because in the meantime, my son was born and he originally had some heart issues, which fortunately resolved themselves. And so it took, it wasn't until 1977 that I was able to enroll. But when I first got on in Boulder, Colorado and started going to classes and just being around some of the teachers, most of whom were students of Trung Prampche, not all, but especially in the Buddhist classes they were, I just got around that world and I was just the square peg had found the square hole. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like thunk. I just knew I was home. And I've been very grateful for that clarity that has never departed from me. So I don't know whether that, who knows whether it has to do with past lifetimes and connections and karmic connections. I don't know. Mm-hmm. People may or may not even consider the possibility of multiple lifetimes, but it's hard to say. But I think generally we will know when we found that tradition that's right for us. But I think we need to go in really clear eyed. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to know about a teacher and their teaching, you know, look at the students. What do you see in the students? Now, you can't expect the students to be perfect in any way, shape, or form, because we all have feet of play. We're all human beings. We're all struggling. We're doing our best. And until somebody attains complete realization up to the very moment of that kind of realization, you know, they're still subject to all kinds of problems and obstacles and neurosis and so forth. And, you know, even people can have, I think, profound levels of realization, and it still may not be complete. There still can be kind of shadow stuff going on, which is why some teachers you know, I've gotten in trouble with various scandals around money and sex and different things and power. Right. And it doesn't mean they didn't have any realization. It just that means it wasn't complete. There was still shallow things they hadn't dealt with. And so it's complex, right? So you, I don't think we should expect perfection from our teachers or from their students, but you need to see that there's something genuine going on, mm-hmm. that there's some real, that people are being processed and there's some kind of a willingness to really commit to practice and commit to a path. You know, today I think. I don't want to get off on, on this theme too much, but, you know, there's a, a certain kind of strain of uh, I've been an activist and been involved in social justice work, at least since I went to prison. So for mm-hmm. a long time now, and I'm still very involved in trying to transform our criminal justice system by bringing mindfulness based interventions, not only to the incarcerated, but also to everybody that works in the system, the correctional officers, the mm-hmm. probation and parole officers, the, the judges, prosecutors, the police and so forth. That's a very big part of my life today. And I've been involved in all kinds of peace work and social change work. But nonetheless, there is a kind of social justice movement milieu today mm-hmm. that I personally feel is kind of a, a wrong path, blame and shame focused. And it has really just come in and taken over our society. Right. And it's really influencing all the Dharma traditions as well. And I think there's a lot of people today involved in various meditation centers that they think that ideology and the dharma are the same thing and they're not at all you know they're not uh, they're not at all and they're not it, coming from love it's got to come you know any kind of justice has to come from love has absolutely has to come from love you know i just interviewed for one of our summits an amazing woman who lives in the state of acre in brazil very remote part of the amazon rainforest and she and her husband her husband is chief of the yawanawa people and and she's originally mm-hmm. a native person from uh she's zapotec from mexico from oaxaca but they met, and she'd been an activist for indigenous rights and climate emergency all over the Americas for a long time. And now she and her husband lead the Yawanawa people in this very challenged part of the Amazon rainforest. She could have been talking all about the injustices and how, you know, modern people are destroying the world. She could have gone. It wasn't her message at all. You know, she was very clear about what we need to do, but it was a message of love and inclusivity and working together. Mm-hmm. You know, there was just none of that blame and shame approach to activism. Mm-hmm. And yet she's fierce. She's fierce for protecting the, the rainforest and protecting uh, the rights of indigenous people. 
but she totally comes from that Gandhian, Kingian tradition of love. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's not what's current today. It's really affecting a lot of Dharma communities, many of which I think are tend to be more focused on political correctness than they are on actual Dharma these days. So, And I think it's trouble for the teachers, too, because I think a lot of teachers are hesitant around their students anymore to really teach. They don't want to get canceled. <laughs> they don't want to get canceled, right? Right. You tickle somebody's ego a little bit and suddenly they're after you, you know? Right. I think it's tougher than ever to find, uh, but they're there. They're there. They are there. The genuine thing is still there. It can be found. Yeah. And I think a key point is that they're not going to find you. You have to yeah, be seeking. Exactly. Right. You got to be on the path. And when so. you're ready. In fact, there, we have, there is a period of life when we think, my teacher's going to find me. You know? I'm just going to magically appear right now. It doesn't now, really now. work that way. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. I recently received a question from a listener. She wanted to know if it was possible to avoid digestion problems by eating only healthy organic food. It's a nice thought, but unfortunately, just not possible. You see, your natural ability to digest food declines with age. This is because your body produces fewer enzymes, which are the proteins responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes means more difficulty digesting food. Even organic foods won't provide enough enzymes to properly digest them. This is especially true if you cook your food because cooking kills the enzymes. This is why you may have digestion problems even after a healthy meal. Your body just can't produce enough enzymes to get the job done. This is where supplementing with high-quality enzyme supplements can be a huge help. I personally recommend Masszymes by Bioptimizers. It's a best-in-class supplement loaded with full-spectrum enzymes for digesting proteins, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. Taking Masszymes daily helps top off your enzyme levels and replace the enzymes that your body is no longer producing, which means you'll be able to eat all sorts of delicious foods and digest them quickly and effortlessly. After you start taking Masszymes, you may notice that you no longer feel bloated after meals and that your belly feels flatter. And if you have a leaky gut, Masszymes could reduce gut irritation and help you absorb even more nutrients. Verified buyer Mike C. gave Masszymes a five-star rating saying, quote, it has definitely helped me address digestion and health issues, end quote. Listen, life's too short to suffer from digestion problems. If you want freedom from your food, especially during the upcoming holiday season, try Masszymes risk-free and experience for yourself the magic of high-quality enzymes. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to masszymes.com forward slash unbeatable. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot -E com forward slash unbeatable. Use the code unbeatable10 to get 10% off. Again, that link is masszymes.com forward slash unbeatable. Use the code unbeatable1010. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. There's a couple things that are interesting to me. I also grew up with an alcoholic family many, many generations, both sides. And so I had, you know, when you were talking about your childhood, it was really reminding me of mine and just growing up in a village of 375 in upstate New York, dairy country, and all the chaos of the house and whatnot. And for me, I found solace in nature because I got outside a lot and maybe you did too. But in the last few years, I found a lot of benefit. And I know a lot of people found benefit in, you know, the 12-step traditions, Al-Anon for me particularly, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not an active participant, but I know you know, I occasionally attend a class with my wife and, and I know people who use that as a complete spiritual practice. Do you think absolutely the 12 step programs can be like a, a Dharma practice in mm -hmm. and of itself like that? Very much so. Yeah. 
It was a big part of my path while I was in prison. I was very active in the 12-step groups there. We had both Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, kind of a joint group. They had amazing sponsors that came in from the outside. And, you know, that was one place in prison. You at least once a week were up in a space where you were with fellow human beings that just treated you like ordinary fellow human beings. And it was no, because right. otherwise in, in prison, generally you're, you're regarded as less than human. And there's a real edge around how you're treated. And, and even some of the volunteers that come in from the outside and some religious groups, it's a little bit of this patronizing thing. But these were just fellow drunks and addicts, and they just coming. So it was like at least once a week you were kind of out of prison and in the human realm, at least up in that room for an hour and a half. And so it was a real blessing, and and we had great sponsors. One of them remained my close friend until his death just a couple of years ago. You know, that was a big part of my path of transformation. When I got out, I was going to meetings for a little bit. I didn't quite find, I released to Boulder, Colorado. I didn't quite find the meeting that I really connected with, but part of it was, I was really busy with my own life and my own spiritual path, and I wasn't going to be able to make that my primary path or become a person resourcing it like I was in prison. Like in prison, I was like the backstop resourcing that program for 14 years because people came and went, and I kept training people into all the positions, you know, but I was always in the background keeping it going. And and one of my early sponsors said, if you want this program to really work for you, become somebody that's making it work for others, that's getting it off and, you know, the basic 12 step. Mm-hmm. So I really believed in that. So just being kind of a consumer of the meetings was a little difficult, bit of an adjustment. And at some point, I realized that alcohol really wasn't an issue for me anymore, nor were drugs. And my own Tibetan Buddhist path demands so much time and so much commitment that it just didn't make sense to continue both. So I didn't, but I love the path. I have a very close friend that I do a lot of work in the criminal justice world with. And I would say that is, his, he's also a meditator, but in many ways, I would mm-hmm. say the 12-step work is his core community and his core path, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful program and it's saved countless lives. So I'm, I'm a big believer in it. And that's fascinating. I agree with that. Could you describe, this is, a, again, something that's really interesting to me because I've studied Zen in my early years and then Zajin, Tibetan Buddhism, more recently. What do you see as the primary differences between the two paths? Well, in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, it depends on who the teacher is. My teacher, Trung Rimche, who died in 1987, really emphasized basic meditation practice. And he actually mm-hmm. incorporated some of the Zen forms. And, you know, we had these month-long sittings called datans, which was similar to a Zen session, except longer. Mm-hmm. Some people would go that way. We also had what we call weekthans, which is basically a seven-day intensive, very similar to the form mm-hmm. of the session. And the basic mm-hmm. Shamatha Vipassana meditation practice in the Tibetan tradition is very similar to Zazen. They're both, they're very similar. Of course, there are different approaches to Zazen, and mm-hmm. some people are doing breath counting and different things, and then there's Shikantaza just sitting. In general, in, in Zen, there's, my experience is teachers give less precise instruction. It's a, you just kind of go sit mm-hmm. on your cushion and figure it out. I don't particularly think that. I mean, you'll get there eventually as long as you stay on your cushion, but I personally believe in giving people much more helpful instruction, and I think the Tibetan tradition has a lot I mean, it's, you know, the the Tibetan culture, they embraced Buddhism back in the 8th or ninth century and brought it from northern India and some influence from China into that remote Himalayan region and worked on it for 1,500 years without much interference. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it became like the Harvard, Stanford Mm -hmm. of Buddhism, right? I mean, tremendous, tremendous depth. But the basic practice is very similar. But then in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you have all these various uh, Didi yoga practices, visualization, a mantra, you have the, the deep inner yoga practices. So you have all this advanced tantric Vajrayana kind of practice, which is really high-tech spirituality is basically what it is, which you don't have in Zen. 
In terms of the view, though, in terms of the kind of understanding of the nature of mind, there is a lot of similarity. The ultimate view, as understood in both the Tibetan tradition and then there are a lot. In fact, people have written books. You know, sometimes the highest view in Tibetan Buddhism and the highest, more formless practices are what are called Dzogchen or Mahamudra. Right. And people have written books about the similarity between Shikantaza or just sitting in the Zen tradition and Mahamudra and Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition. So, you know, there are a lot of parallels. And, you know, my teacher, Trung Rinpoche, my first teacher, he wrote a fabulous book called The Skull Cup and the Teacup, or The Teacup and the Skull Cup, I can't remember. The Teacup representing Zen and the Skull Cup representing Tibetan Buddhism, because it's used ritually, right? Mm -hmm. The book is based on a set of seminars he gave, and those were transcribed and edited into a book. But it was all about Zen and Vajrayana Buddhism. It's a fascinating book. Highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of, they very much sync up. There's certainly no conflict in my life being deeply involved in both. Mm -hmm. There's no place where they conflict. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Interesting. Very influenced by the yoga tradition and understand Tantra path. And so it's it's interesting to see the effect of yoga and, and the Indian tradition on the Tibetan Buddhism. I think there's, um, there's a lot of overlap and then some dissimilar things. While I was in prison, interestingly, for some reason, I guess I was reaching out and then people were finding me, but I became really connected. I was distant from any centers of my own community, the Ben Bajadatu, now the International Shambhala community. And there wasn't much going on. And this prison was in Springfield, Southwest Missouri. So there wasn't much going on there. Although there were a couple of local practitioners that did come in and sit with us. But at any rate, I ended up getting connected with people in all kinds of different Western Buddhist traditions and also other traditions more Hindu yogic traditions and so forth. Mm -hmm. Many, many close, close relationships I have today. So unlike a lot of practitioners who mostly know about their tradition, their community, their tradition, I'm really broadly connected. And then, of course, because of the prison work and then other things, I became very immersed in the secular mindfulness world. So I'm very broadly connected there as well. And I know most of the major teachers in the Western Dharma traditions and uh, secular mindfulness traditions uh, as friends and colleagues. And so I've just gotten connected in that way, but I also have some very close connections in other traditions. One of my closest spiritual brothers is a teacher in a tradition that is kind of a mixture of, of the impersonalist Advaita school and the, and the influence of Ramana Maharshi mm-hmm. in Indian spiritual culture, mm-hmm. and then more the Divine Mother Bhakti Yoga, like Papa Ramdas. And his particular teacher was influenced by both of those, was Yogi Ram Kumar from Turamnambla, India. This community is also very connected with the Bowels of Bengal, which is a tantric sect originally mostly located in Bengal, India. They're kind of like gypsies and, and they're musicians and dancers, and they've been persecuted a lot, but they attribute their origins to both Hindu and Buddhist tantra. And so anyway, my friend who has an ashram up in Montana, he's really one of my closest spiritual brothers, and I go up and visit his ashram a lot. His teacher had an ashram in Arizona. His teacher passed about 10 years ago, but I used to go down and teach at that ashram as well. So I've been very connected across these traditions. And there is a lot of intersection. When you get into deep inner yogic work, I mean, it's it's all related. There's different systems and different approaches. But, you know, things are mixing, you know, I mean, we have access to all of it in the West today in ways that just mind-boggling. It's all in Wikipedia, right? right? And it's all, everything's been published. Right. And there's all this interchange. But, but that's this isn't the first time that happened. There were times in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, when there were mystics and yogis running around in that interchange and who were Christian historians, who were Hindu yogis, who were Buddhist yogis, or 
you know, or Sufis, you know, and that interchange has happened before. And so, you know, when you get into deeply working with our mind and being, you know, where there's a universality to it, we're all the same, we all have the same basic mind, consciousness and being. So these different traditions all have a way in. and, And I really, really appreciate all of it. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. One of the things that um, is challenging for a lot of people, and you kind of alluded to it, you had been a practitioner for many, many years, but it, and maybe it was chipping away at your emotional and moral well-being, but it wasn't transformative, right? And I think, was it John Kabat-Zinn who wrote, After Enlightenment, Take Out the Trash? And one of my yoga instructors said, you know, if you're an asshole and you meditate for 20 years, you might be just more, a more focused asshole. Right. <laughs> so how do we get the moral and emotional development built into a practice? You know, the fact that I was, you know, really a serious practitioner before I went to prison really begs the question, how the heck did that happen, right? (laughs) Suffice it to say, I was really compartmentalizing my life, right? I was choosing to ignore a lot of what my teacher was saying, and I was focusing on what I was interested in, which was basically the mind and awareness and meditation training. And I was completely ignoring the ethical foundations of the Dharma. And also, he really emphasized not compartmentalizing your life. You know, if you show up, and you look really good in a meditation hall, but you go home and you got a sink full of d- dirty dishes. There's something fishy about that, right? So he was all about, mm-hmm. you know, com- not compartmentalizing, completely integrating into mm-hmm. your life. But I wasn't doing that. I was ignoring that. Mm-hmm. Even though I was completely committed to that lineage and that teaching, I just was still caught up in my own conditioning and compartmentalization and also my addictions and, and all the rest of it. So when I got locked up, you know, that cleaved all that craziness away and I was really able to focus. But also, I realized what was really missing in my life, what had been missing, was a focus on the ethical foundations. So I decided to completely build my life in prison based on, to begin with, the lay precepts of the Buddhist tradition, which are classic, you know, religious precepts of refraining from killing, refraining from lying, refraining from stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from misuse of intoxicants. And then I went on to take the novice monastic vows, which adds some more, right? But I was really serious about grounding every aspect of my life in those precepts. I knew that had to be the foundation from which I built a new life. And so I I was really, really serious about that. And I also got really clear about the nature of cause and effect and karma. You know, like if I came out to the vending machine, there was a quarter in it, I'm leaving it there. You know, it's like, because I don't want the (laughs) karma of that. I'm here experiencing all this karma, you know, now I'm in prison for all this. I don't want any more, right? I'm just going to live cleanly as I can. So, you know, that was a big part of it, but also really understanding you know, morality have been introduced to me in my Roman Catholic education is more of a should. Mm-hmm. And then with a big punishment reward context to it, right? Mm-hmm. In Buddhism, you begin to understand when you drive deeply. I mean, there are the precepts and there's guidelines to help beginning to, to lead an awake life and a compassionate life and an ethically ethical life and a moral life. But if you dive deep into these teachings, it's really understanding that this is how life actually works. Mm-hmm. That if you really understand cause and effect and you really understand how life works, you're naturally going to be motivated to live an ethical, moral life because you realize this is actually what works, right? And wisdom is inherent in the nature of reality. and Wisdom is inherent in the nature of our being. When we go deep enough, we begin to get that clarity. So then you don't really so much need the external reinforcements because it's really you're beginning to allow to, you know, bring forth what we really are, the depth of our being, which is naturally ethical, moral, compassionate, awake, and so forth, right? But initially, it is helpful to take vows and have precepts. I've taken so many vows in my in, my, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the Zen tradition. I've taken so many vows that, you know, if I err, you know, I'm headed for lifetimes of problems, right? Because I've made so many commitments, and I, that is good for me. You know, I have some 
pretty clear boundary markers out there, right? If I'm starting to get out of my lane, I'm, I'm going to feel it pretty quickly, right? So it is helpful for any of us to have those things, but it's helpful if we can, you know, unlike in some religious traditions where ethical codes uh, and morality is presented as shoulds and, you know, if you beer, you're going to be punished and it's about good and bad and good and evil and so forth. In the Buddhist tradition, it's really just practice. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, even with precept practice, even if you make lifelong commitment, it's always a 24-hour practice. And, you know, you renew your commitments in the morning, and yet you do your best during the day to live ethically and, and live according to your principles, your commitments. And at the end of the day, you see how you did. And if you see places where you're veered off or dropped the ball or really screwed up, you acknowledge that to yourself. And if you're in a community, you might acknowledge it to a teacher or to your fellow practitioners, but you at least acknowledge it to yourself. And, you know, you purify, let go, and then the next day you start with a fresh start. You always start with a fresh start. So it's precepts are there to clarify our habitual patterns and let us actually see all the, the confusion of our life and our conditioning and, and the legacy, we've, the fear and survival-based legacy we all inherit, and to really see that with clarity so we can begin untangling it and naturally begin to lead an ethical life. But it's not about shoulds, and it's not about good and bad and punishment. It's just practice, and it's just clarification, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Practicing as a daily, just a daily initiative. My teacher, Nakamura, used the expression, one day, one lifetime. Mm -hmm. And this is what he was talking about. You wake up and then you, you begin your practice. And then at the end of the day, you look back and you learn from you know, what went well and what didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow, you know, hopefully we get another chance. That's beautiful. Simple. Mm -hmm. You wrote a book, uh, Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame fearlessly live our higher purpose and become an unstoppable force for good in the world. The message is pretty clear from that, but what's the key point that you'd love listeners to know and inspire them to go out and, and get this book and get on, a, get on the path? Well, that book came out two or three years ago, but I've been leading radical responsibility seminars and workshops all over North America and Europe, even Latin America for about 18 years. And uh, I finally got the book out. But where that philosophy and model kind of emerged for me was really in prison. And when I got locked up, it became really clear to me the world I was in was full of negativity and bitterness and anger and violence, and everybody had a big victim story going on. In fact, generally, when you met a, a fellow prisoner, the ritual was you might go out and walk the track you know, on a meal break or something, and they, they share their victim story, you share your victim story, right? And after I went through that a few, mm -hmm. few times, I didn't want to hear my story. And, you know, like you, your lawyer screwed you over and your fall partners, you know, all the whole victim story. And I didn't want to hear mine anymore, and I didn't really want to hear theirs, which wasn't very compassionate, but I, that's just not where I wanted to be. And I realized that if I didn't proactively mm -hmm. do something else, I could easily come out of prison angry and bitter and get caught up even while I was living. I didn't want to live that way while I was there. And, you know, it's natural that prisoners go there because when you get arrested, the whole process of being arrested and going through the justice system and being incarcerated, you're just being demonized and buried under a mountain of guilt and shame. Now, maybe you have caused harm, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, the process is just like, almost annihilating you in the, under this mountain of shame and blame and guilt and demonization. Mm. So naturally, people just kind of armor up just to survive psychically, you know, uh, mentally and emotionally. Mm -hmm. And generally, they armor up with bitterness and anger and with their own victim story. And that's really sad mm. because for me, the real process of transformation begins when you can actually really see the impact your behaviors have had on others, the harmful impact, and develop a not feeling bad about yourself, not guilt and shame, but genuine remorse and regret where you really say, wow, wow, I see that I really 
created harm for others. And if there's any way I could undo that or repair that, or if I could wind the clock back, right, that genuine, because that's about others. And it's very hard for most prisoners to contact that because they're protecting themselves from this attack on, on their being, really. But anyway, I didn't want, that's not where I wanted to go. And I realized, you know, if I was going to, had any chance of getting out of prison and having any kind of a life when I got out, I needed to embrace 200% ownership for having got myself in there and for what I was going to do with myself while I was there, all the choices. I was, that just became crystal clear to me. And so that's what I did. And through doing that, I was able to spend 14 years in a deep path of transformation. But I was also able to create national movements and national programs, things you're not supposed to be able to do from inside prison. And if you had asked, if I'd ever asked permission, they would have said, no, you're crazy. You can't do that. <laughs> so that's where it was born. And of course, there were a lot of influences. One influence was I connected with that man who I mentioned before is, is in that kind of Baul, Advaita, Bhakti Yoga tradition, mm-hmm. who had a, a secular training called The Event. And he ran into some of my, I was publishing in various journals while I was in prison. He ran into some of my writings. He wanted to use it in his curriculum. So we got in touch and uh, we quickly connected and he came to the prison and we connected even more in person. And I started reading all this stuff. I wanted to get this training into the prison and I managed to do it. I got a couple of psychologists to go out and try it and we got it in. And during the last three years I was there, we did the event four times, very intense three-day hmm group process that takes you deep in very quickly and very deeply into your family of origin conditioning and traumas and all the rest of it. It helps you shift your relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And it was really powerful in prison because once you got, you know, 30 prisoners in the room, you see that 90% of them suffered profound abuse as children. Yes. You know, sexual, emotional, physical abuse, so just heartbreaking stuff. And most of them have never shared it with anyone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that some of the context of Iraq responsibility came from that program, but a lot of different influences, as well as it's grounded in mindfulness, it's grounded in mm-hmm. the context of basic goodness, which is the fundamental teaching of my Tibetan teacher, that we all have innate, unconditional, primordial, basic goodness. That's the ground of our being. Mm-hmm. Developing a reflective mindfulness awareness practice of some kind, doing emotional intelligence work, and then really learning the science of change, understanding the brain, understanding the mind, understanding how how to deconstruct habits that are no longer serving us, how to form new habits. I use the context a lot of Cartman's drama triangle, understanding the the triangulation that creates endless drama throughout the world of the victim, persecutor, rescuer, which just fuels, I mean, it's the basis of all our great novels and plays and so forth, but it also mm-hmm. fuels world conflict and destroys families and organizations and kids and families and endless war. It's this basic drama triangle. And people find it incredibly liberating once they see it and can make boundaries with it and learn to get unhooked from it. So, you know, Radical Responsibility is a book. It's really a manual on how to begin to really take ownership for our own life, to understand enough about our own physiology and psychology to really step into an ownership or a self-leadership position using mindfulness techniques, using self-regulation techniques. So we're not just being driven by the world around us mechanically, unconsciously. We're actually owning our own life and owning our own circumstances. You know, I often describe radical responsibility as voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance we face in life, each and every circumstance, including those we can see we had something to do with, but also including the ones that we can't see we had anything to do with. They just seem like they fell out of the sky and landed on our heads. But the important thing about this model is the distinction between ownership and blame. Radical responsibility has nothing to do with blame. It's clearly not about blaming others, but it's not one iota about blaming ourselves, and it has nothing to do with blaming victims. It's about ownership, because that's the only place we have any real personal power. 
I mean, it's natural. We're all going to, you know, kvetch and blame and, you know, but how long do we want to indulge that? We want to focus on what can I do? What can I do to move my own life forward? Right. Because right. that's the only place I have any power. And so all this is done in a context of tremendous self-compassion, but at the same time, just beginning to see that blaming and complaining and all the rest of it is just a really inefficient use of our time and energy and doesn't take us anywhere. In fact, it'll take us backwards. So so that's the model. But it's, you know, other people are like, oh, your fellow Navy SEAL, what's his name? Uh, extreme ownership. Jocko, I was just thinking Jocko Willing. Yeah, Jocko Willing. So extreme ownership is a similar context. And there are other writers who've written about that kind of mental toughness, but they don't get so much into the deep, how do you do it? They tell you, this is what you got to do, right? Right. But how do you do that? How do you understand enough about your own mind and psychology and emotions and how you develop a reflective awareness practice to actually give yourself the ability to really get in the driver's seat of your own mind? Now, of course, you know, I'm sure Jocko Willink actually, through his Navy SEAL training, embraced a lot of awareness training that even if it wasn't called that, right? Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, this similar context to books like that, but I would say it's a little more spiritually grounded and goes deeper into the into the how. I love that. And I was going to mention Jocko's uh, book, Extreme Ownership. In this, I love his book. I've, I've used it in my consulting work. Yeah. One of my business clients, I've had all the managers read the book and we use it a lot as a reference point. Yeah, it's great. Again, it's great for the secular minded and those who just need a little bit of a club over their head to say, go <laughs> do this and here's why it's important. But I think you're right. The work of self-awareness is a little bit more subtle and requires it requires introspection, not doing. Mm-hmm. And so this is part of the challenge of our society where we've got such a massive bias toward action right. and tax that we don't take the time to do the introspection. Yeah, doing versus being. That's right. Yeah, we don't honor the being quality of life. Right. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. How do people connect with you? And I'm curious about the Neurosomatic Mindfulness Program and, and the work that you're doing. How do people find you and, and where should they kind of start depending on their interest? Yeah, well, if people are interested in, in my book, Radical Responsibility, they can go to radicalresponsibilitybook.com okay. and you can read all about the book there. You can get a free chapter download mm-hmm. and you can read all the accolades from other best-selling authors like Daniel Goleman and Tar Brock and John Kabat-Zinn and Rick Hansen and many others. And then you can order the book right from there. I mean, you can choose uh, indie books or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, whatever, however you want to order the book. In terms of my courses and the summits that I put on, it's HeartMind Institute. So you can go to heartmind.co, yeah. .co, not com, but just co, heartmind.co. Right. My basic website is fleetmall.com. You can always start there and find most of what I do from fleetmall.com. And if people are interested in the whole prison work side of what I do, Prison Mindfulness Institute is prisonmindfulness.org. That's the work we do with, with at-risk, incarcerated, and returning youth and adults. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Engage Mindfulness Institute, which is engagemindfulness.org, where we train mindfulness teachers in trauma-informed approaches to bringing mindfulness to underserved populations and people who've been placed at risk. And, and then we have the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, which is all about bringing uh, mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency to first responders. So that's uh, mindfulpublicsafety.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to tracking your work. And yeah, enough said. Happy New Year. And uh, may 2022 be a blessed year for you. Yeah, thank you. Same to you, Mark. Thank you very much. Wow, what a tremendous guy. So it's an incredible story of transformation. And um, Fleet is very, very effective at communicating some pretty powerful concepts around mindfulness and 
understands the differences between all the different traditions. So we had a conversation about the difference between Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, how the 12-step programs can be a, a spiritual practice, how to find a teacher or a lineage that's right for you, understanding the emotional and moral development component and how important that is to really take that on as part of your spiritual practice. Show notes and transcripts will be on our site at markdivine.com. The video will be going up at our YouTube channel. You can find that at our Mark Divine site or markdivine.com slash YouTube. I am at Twitter, the handle Mark Divine, and on Instagram and Facebook, it's at RealMarkDivine. And you can find me on LinkedIn as well. In January, late January, we'll be launching Divine Inspiration, a new newsletter. I'd love for you to receive it. And uh, if you're not on my email list, please go to the website markdivine.com and subscribe. And we will be disseminating really interesting tidbits of inspiration from myself and also some updates or summaries from this podcast and some other um, maybe products that I'm testing and trying out. So lots of interesting things you'll find on that new Divine Inspiration newsletter coming to you soon. Special shout out to my amazing team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, Michelle Zarnick, and Amy Jerkowitz, who do amazing things to help bring this podcast to you every single week. Also, really appreciate reviews. And if you've reviewed this podcast, thank you very much. If you have not, please consider reviewing it. It really helps with awareness and other people finding it and help share it with your friends as well. Well, this is going to be an incredible year, 2022. We're choosing to overcome a lot of the challenges that we found from 2021. We're going to learn from them. We're going to grow from them. We're going to become stronger, more resilient, more focused, uh, less distracted, more introspective in 2022. It all starts with you. We must be the change we want to see in the world. Hashtag Gandhi. <laughs> and that's what this is all about. The Mark Divine Show is about helping you learn how to take control of what you can control and um, live one day at a time doing amazing things that are in line with your purpose. So I'm here for you. If I can do anything to help you out, please let us know. Hit us up on social media. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Booyah. Divine out. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.